Welcome to Famous Lost Words, where we dig up classic interviews from the past and play the best parts for you. I'm Christopher Ward with Tom Jokic. Christopher, before we get started with part two of our salute to the 1960s, part one was a riot, by the way, (laughs) I'd like us each to create our ultimate 60s all-star band, okay? So here's what you have to do. (laughs) Okay. You have to choose a lead singer, a lead guitarist, rhythm guitarist, drummer, bassist, maybe a keyboardist or any other instrumentalist that you want. And remember, they all have to be from the 60s, and you have to reasonably expect that they will play well together as musicians, not necessarily as people. Because <laughs> that would <laughs> no, be, be too much to expect. Yeah. That's exactly right. So, with that in mind, what would be your dream band? Okay. My lead singer would be Aretha Franklin. Okay. Good call. Good call. Shooting, shooting for the top here. My lead guitarist, and he's a stylist, but I think he would be versatile in this situation, is Carlos Santana. That's excellent. Yeah. The rhythm guitarist, because he said himself that he's the best rhythm guitarist there is, John Lennon. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Okay. Now, hang on one sec. You think John Lennon is going to provide proper rhythm guitarist background for Santana and Aretha? Well, he's going to make the session a lot of fun, and that counts for something. <laughs> I am with you there. Good. Yeah, and Yoko will be allowed. So Okay, we, excellent. Yeah, we love Yoko. Um, Charlie Watts on drums, you okay with that? Okay, yeah. And just to pair off the rhythm section, how about Paul McCartney on bass? I love Paul McCartney. I love his bass playing. I don't think he's funky enough for what you've got going here. Well, you may be right, because the keyboardist is Booker T from Booker T uh, oh. <laughs> and the MGs. What are you laughing about? He's a great player. Oh, no, he's he's great. But yes, absolutely, Paul McCartney might not quite work in there. You almost need the rest of the uh, of the MGs backing up uh, Aretha. But that's too easy, right? That's too easy. You don't want to do that. That's not yeah. the all-stars we're talking about. And the percussionist, I've added one, I hope you don't mind, is Pete Escovedo, also from Santana. right. Right, mm-hmm. right. Now, if I'm not mistaken, he, he is, is yes, Sheila correct. E's uncle, right? Oh, I thought it was her father, but maybe you're right. No, you're right. His daughter is Sheila E. Oh, Anything I got some else? background singers. Yeah, background singers, the Raylettes. Oh, yeah. So that's Ray Charles' backing band, right? Backing singers? Yeah. And I mean, there was rotating membership in that group, but, you know, like listen to the sound of Hit the Road Jack and those songs. I mean, man. They kill. Yes. And I just added one perhaps superfluous member, but someone who is important okay. to me, and that is a dance coordinator, James Brown. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. I'm with you, buddy, but that will absolutely not work because James Brown finds any member of the band who's not right on. So you think that yeah. Aretha Franklin, John Lennon, Charlie Watts... <laughs> And Paul McCartney are going to sit there and allow themselves to be fined for missing a note? <laughs> well, I think once they stop laughing, yes. All right. I'm going to do my dream band, okay? By the way, I really like your choices. I really like your choices. Okay. Thank you. So first of all, I'm going to agree with you by putting Aretha Franklin as my lead singer. However, I'm going to pair Aretha Franklin up with someone that you, that's going to shock you. But I think they would make an awesome duo, 
And Uh-oh. even though he himself might not agree to it because he's one of the crankiest people in music, Burton Cummings. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my. Oh, boy. You you made a commitment there, i got to say. <laughs> Full marks, my friend. <laughs> Thank you. I'm actually almost embarrassed to say it, but I just want you to yeah. just stick with me here, okay? What I'm aiming for is soul and rock. And I think Aretha, in a way, can do both. Mm-hmm. But I do want a rock guy who I also believe can pull off soul, even though their music was far from soul. The music of the Guess Who what didn't really fit into the R&B era at all. Well, but there's something about his voice. If you want somebody like that, what about Steve Winwood? Oh, sure. You know what? That's a great idea. But that's not who I chose. So you leave me alone, okay? <laughs> okay. Mm. <laughs> so... I've got Aretha and Burton in there, although Steve Winwood sounds pretty good. Then on lead guitarist, I have Jimi Hendrix, okay? Who? Now, Jimi, that's going to be wild and might be a little bit off the rails. Rhythm guitar, because he can do rock and he has a soulful R&B feel sometimes, Keith Richards, okay? You know what? I got to say, that is an inspired choice because a lot of people would go rhythm guitarist. But to me, that's the way that he plays, he is one of the consummate rhythm guitar players. I mean, his solos are very token. They're sort of, you know, four sure. bars long at the most sometimes. Yes. Um, yeah. So that's a great choice. And for drummer, I'm getting a little bit geeky because the drummer I'm choosing is Bernard Purdy. And he was yeah. not a famous person, you know, in terms of chart success. But he is one of the quintessential drummers. He invented a beat called the Purdy Shuffle, which is absolutely astonishing. And he was also Aretha's musical director for a lot of her career. And he was just spot on as a drummer. And I think he can hit him hard enough to play rock. But I certainly know he can do R&B. He's fantastic. And on bass, I'm still a little bit geek deep here. And that is Larry Graham of Sly and the Family Stone. Oh, yeah. Also Drake's uncle. Okay. And on piano, I know we didn't ask for piano, and I know you're going to laugh when I say that I think Carol King should play piano. And there's a reason for that, because in the mid-90s, when um, Bob Dylan did a special appearance on a kind of 10th anniversary Letterman show or something, and he went out there with, the, with one of the greatest bands I'd ever seen and played like a Rolling Stone, and Bob was hilarious, because in a way, he was barely singing the song. But playing piano on that performance was Carol King, and she rocked it. Ah. And you know she's got soul, because she wrote, You Make Me Feel Like a Natural Woman. Um, but yeah. she can play piano. And she was like cooking on this thing. And so I would put her there. I would also have the producer of this whole band be Glenn Johns, but only if he promises to wear those outrageous clothes that he wore in the Get Back movie. <laughs> only then. Yeah, uh, good and then. Call. Keyboards, we want Billy Preston, but he needs to come in after a few albums when everyone hates each other. You know, by that point, they'll be at each other's throats because then he'll bring in the good vibes and amazing chops to the proceedings. There you go. There's my band. That's the way God planned it. Yeah. (laughs) Tom, we have another monster episode ahead of us. As we try to pull off this Herculean task of honoring the music of the 60s in just two shows, we have more incredible interview clips to play for you. We'll hear from Simon and Garfunkel in what may be the most precious clip you will ever hear. (laughs) Art Garfunkel? Both endearing and kind of maddening. Yeah, it's one of my favorite moments for that very reason. We also have the history of the Mamas and the Papas, told by one of the Papas. Plus, The Who, Stevie Wonder, Tommy James, Jerry and the Pacemakers, The Zombies, and James Brown. Let's get started with Simon and Garfunkel. 
That's Simon and Garfunkel from 1970, and the song that was both their creative peak and the beginning of the end, Bridge Over Troubled Waters, and one of the few songs from the duo in which Art Garfunkel sang alone. Art Garfunkel is, to put it mildly, a fastidious person. He's one of those interview subjects who always sounds slightly annoyed with you for asking questions. He'll then give you what to some is, well, TMI, but to others, (laughs) fascinating detail. His mark on popular music for the five albums in six years that he and Paul Simon released between 1964 and 70 is indelible. His ethereal voice is unforgettable. They definitely called it quits while at the top of their game. Here in this interview from the mid-1990s, Art Garfunkel detailed his recording regimen. I made sure to get a good night's sleep as best as I could the night before. I made sure to warm up a couple of hours easily before I went to the studio. I kept my attitude very positive and the vision of the vocal I want. And then I just prayed for a visitation from God that I would be the great singer I can be and not the average singer I can also be. The rest is shake out all human interference so that with a lot of humble devotion, you get a visitation and the vocal cords really carry something of beauty through them. And you are a a vehicle for something special. The boxer from 1969, Simon and Garfunkel, that is both a wonderfully detailed account about art's procedure and just a little bit precious as you said but you cannot argue with the beauty of his vocals here he talks about the deep connection between himself and paul simon when you're friends with somebody from junior high school days on there is a permanent uh, kinship because your very personalities were formed and developed in tandem so there's a very soulful, meaningful part of my life and who I am that Paul knows of and vice versa. In a sense, that's an electricity that we can always plug into. But wouldst that the story were only that simple? The rest of life and its plot structure interferes with that. And without going into it, it's just simply not that easy. Excellent use of the word wouldst there, Artie. <laughs> <laughs> Well, (laughs) here Art talks about the story behind the choice of who would sing what is arguably Simon and Garfunkel's best-loved song. Paul Simon wrote Bridge Over Troubled Water. He sang it for me at his house on East End Avenue. He sang the upper notes in falsetto, and I've always liked Paul's falsetto. I think he hadn't used it enough on our records, and he sings really nice and fluty in the upper register when he's doing falsetto. So when he finished showing me the song, I said, great song, fabulous. But, you know, I think you should do it. You sound so great in that upper register. Being generous, I said that. He said, no, Artie, I specifically wrote it for you to sing. I said, cool, I'll sing it. That's the truth. Do you hear any story there, any argument, any problem, any fight? I curse myself that I ever said in a moment of generosity... I think you should sing it because I've always liked your falsetto and here's a perfect song to show it off. I didn't press the case. I didn't stay with it. I completely went with his answer, which was, no, I wrote it for you to sing it. And I thought as I licked my chops, seeing a piece of steak, if ever I saw one, okay, I'll sing it. When you're weary Feeling small When Tears are in your eyes 
Voyage Over Troubled Water, 1970. There you have it, the real story behind the controversy over that song, which was indeed a troubling song for Paul Simon because he writes this classic and Artie gets all the applause when they play it live. And there he is standing by himself on the stage with just only Larry Nectal, the keyboard player. And Paul's kind of backstage going, huh, I don't really like this feeling where he's getting this almost as though he wrote it. And of course, people are also applauding Art Garfunkel's astounding performance of this song in which he takes great pride. That's for sure. Yeah, justified. Did you ever see Paul Simon break it down on the Dick Cavett show, how he wrote the song? You know what? You've told me about this and I think I've watched part of it, but no, I don't think I've seen all of that. I'm going to have to do that. It is amazing. For sure. This is Famous Lost Words. Still much more to come on part two of our 60s edition, including the weirdest story about the mamas and the papas that you will ever hear. And somebody swears that it's true. (laughs) This is Famous Lost Words, where we dig up classic interviews from the archives and play the best parts for you. Let's continue with our tribute to the 60s. California Dreamin' the Mamas and Papas from 1965. Tom, this has to be one of the oddest and most entertaining origin stories for a band. The history of the Mamas and the Papas is etched in the lyrics of Creek Alley, but the details are in this interview with Denny Doherty. And as for the cast pipe on the head story, if it's an (laughs) apocryphal tale, so be it. It's smashing to hear. 1962, the Halifax, well, they changed their name to the Halifax Three. And Cass and the Big Three had a a tour on a bus with Jack Linkletter. We got together in New New York. Bob Cavallo, who just produced Purple Rain here a couple of years ago with Prince, was a club owner in Washington, D.C. Roy Silver was a manager in New York. They got together and put Cass, myself, and Zoll, Jim Hendricks, who was with Cass and the Big Three at the time, and John Sebastian. Well, actually, John Sebastian saw us get together and said, oh, me too, me too, me too. We were back in Washington, D.C., and we didn't know what to call this configuration of people. And it was Cass and myself and Zoll and Sebastian, this kid named Art Stokes, and John Sebastian playing mouth harp, sitting on a stool in the corner, singing occasionally, what do we call this? And no one knew. We didn't know what we were going to call the thing. And I just came up, my, my grandmother, my maternal grandmother, was from Placentia Bay, Newfoundland. Anybody who could make up their mind about anything was a mugwump. Is with your mug, it's like sitting on a fence with your mugs on one side and your wumps on the other. You don't know what to do with yourself. <laughs> so so what a, that's where the name comes Cass from. Cass what a great name. <laughs> we don't know what to call ourselves. Call ourselves mugwumps. We don't know what to do. <laughs> oh. So we became the mugwumps. So you really were responsible for creating folk rock then, weren't you? you the mugwumps, because it was, it was you and it was Sebastian. and I guess. I can't think of any other group at the time no. that, was, that was doing that kind of thing after a period of time. But Cass was staying out there. And then we got a U-Drive. A 61 Caddy limousine to be delivered to Hollywood. <laughs> so we delivered it to Hollywood. It's, we, we had five days to get there. We got there in three, so we were driving around Hollywood in this limousine, auditioning for people to sing in their clubs, to sing in their studio, just to try and get some, some work somehow. 
Then we met Cass, stayed with her for a while. We went up to San Francisco to see Frank Werber, who managed the Kingston Trio, and John and Michelle and I sang for him. We sang California Dream, and we sang him Monday, Monday, and nothing. We came back down to L.A., and uh, by then, Cass had just started singing with us. Whether we liked it or not, she was going to sing with us. And it worked out. I mean, John heard this fourth part. There's a strange, there's a story, I don't know if you've heard about, about Cass getting hit on the head with a, a length of copper pipe. This has happened, this happened. She tried singing with us in the islands, and Michelle's uh, contralto, Michelle's voice is kind of high, and Cass's voice is sort of in the middle. A lot of power, but couldn't get up in the upper registers. And while Duffy was gutting his hotel to build this nightclub, there was a workman who took a, an ice machine apart, and there was a copper coil that he took out, and there was a balcony just down to Creaky Alley. That's where the entrance to Duffy's was, was in Creaky Alley. And he threw the copper coil over into the pile of rubble downstairs, but Cass was coming through the entrance, and he hit her on top of the head and knocked her cold in Creaky Alley. But when she woke up, she had another note, a tone and a half on top of her register. She could sing up there. I don't know. Thank you, God. Who knows how it happened? But that happened. So by the time we got to Hollywood, she was singing with us and knew how, and it sounded great. And uh, Barry McGuire, who you asked about, we knew through the, new, the Christie Minstrels, had just cut Eva Destruction, Lou Adler produced. And he came over to the house that uh, we were hanging out, living in the dark like moles. That's where we were at when McGuire came by and heard these songs and said, well, why don't you sing these things for my producer, Lou Adler? And he said, I have a session tonight. Come on down to the session. After the session's over, you can sing for Lou. So we went down, and Barry was doing his album. I guess it was his second or third album for Dunhill. And we sang these songs, the four of us. He said, what do you want? You, whatever you want, you got. I want to record you. And John, I think one of my favorite lines that John has come up with, to Lou, straight face, looked at me, Lou says, well, what do you want? What we want is a steady stream of money from your office to our house but we don't have a house yet. And if we had a house, we have no way to get there. We have no car. <laughs> and Lou said, all right, all right, all right. We'll give you money. We'll get you a house. We'll get you a car. And we were in business. And we went in the studio and started cutting records. Oh, Danny Doherty, such a wonderful storyteller. And yes, he tells that story about Cass getting hit on the head and subsequently being able to sing one register higher. It's funny. A lot of the members of the band insisted that that story was true. But if you look up that story online you'll see that the story has been debunked a number of times. Nevertheless, it's one of my favorite stories from the Famous Lost Words archive, but it's so weird that so many people, including members of the band, believed it. Wild. Right. We can't possibly tell the story of the 60s without mentioning the profound influence of Motown. We have a couple of Motown episodes in the archives from season six if you want to binge on the music of the most famous record label of the decade. In this clip, Stevie Wonder talks about one of his big 1960s singles. Like many hit songs, My Sharia Moore has a roundabout story that explains its success. Here, Stevie tells how the song became a hit, finally. My Sharia Moore wrote in 1966. It wasn't until 69 that the song was released. How did that come about? The song and the delay. Well, uh, I carried a, a as a tape box of tapes that I always it was like a big bag of tapes that I would carry around with me all the time, and that was just one tune that I wrote that I decided to put away or put aside because I felt that um, it wasn't uh, it wasn't time. I felt it would be a B-side, which it was. Uh, My Sharia Moore originally was the B-side of I Don't Know Why I Love You, which was a flop. <laughs> And uh, 
what happened was, um, I think it was a, I think some people from from uh, Ohio and also from uh, from Illinois at the Shockies there started playing it even before any other people, and uh, I think it was record. I was played on the FM stations, and it broke in one place and another place, and that's how they decided to flip it over and. And Mushroomo was the tune that sort of changed the direction, I guess, of Stevie Wonder too. Stevie Wonder from 1969, My Sharia Amazing that he can have a song that good and just keep it in his back pocket for a few years. That's unbelievable. Yeah. So well, he is Stevie Wonder. So <laughs> exactly. So Christopher, as a songwriter yourself. Do you have a yeah. bunch of songs in your back pocket, or or is it just a bunch oh. of fragments or ideas or song fragments? What do you, what about you? That's exactly what it is, Tom. I have all kinds of bits and pieces of songs, mostly lyric ideas, because I wrote the, I write those down automatically, no matter where I am. And like most people, I've sort of morphed to using my phone for collecting audio ideas. But I've always done that. Like I remember I was out driving one day, and I came up with the idea for what became. Alana Miles song Love Is right. and it was it was more as like a chant it was like hard to get impossible to hold you know straight as an arrow like that sort yeah. of thing and I just I just picked up my little portable recorder and put it down as a spoken word thing and then worked it out musically later on that's fantastic let's hear that line hard to get impossible to hold straight as an arrow oh that's great from 1990, Alana Miles and Love Is. Oh, I love that. I love that. Okay, let's keep going. Papa's got a brand new bag. 1965, Papa's got a brand new bag. That's James Brown. James Brown, the hardest working man in show business. He made an indelible imprint on so many musicians and artists with his killer stage show, super tight band, and highly original songs. Here, James Brown talks briefly about what kind of music he makes. There's been a tremendous amount of perfection added to uh, hard rock, rhythm, and blues. Rock and roll, well, there's no such thing as that because that went out with that in three days. But we, a lot of people say rock and roll because they don't know the new term. It's soul music or like the psychedelic thing, you know. <laughs> That's James Brown with a very James Brown moment, probably from the late 60s or early 70s from the Famous Lost Words archives. Tom? This is the 60s edition of Famous Lost Words. Yeah. Still to come, Tommy James explains what Moni Moni means. I always thought it meant greenbacks, but apparently not. And Christopher, decades before The Walking Dead became famous, there were zombies ruling the top 40. That's next. <laughs> Welcome back to Famous Lost Words. I'm Christopher Ward with Tom Jokic. This week, the music of the 60s. Tommy James had a long string of hits with the Shondells in the 60s and 70s, but none bigger than Moni Moni. Odd title, with a great story, here's the singer. Now, I want to talk about Moni Moni for a minute. Sure. Did Bobby Bloom help you write that song? Yeah, Bobby was in the studio the night that we had. We had about 65, 70 people in the studio the night we did the vocals on Moni Moni. We were grabbing people off the street... Uh, I had all the secretaries from the building come down. We were at 1650 Broadway in the basement recording that. And, uh, boy, it was literally a party that got captured on tape. And Bobby was there. He did the middle part, the Ooh, I Love You, Moni. Oh. And so 
uh, he ended up being one of the co-writers on the tune because so much of it was put together right there on the spot. I see. And Bobby Bloom, of course, had his own big hit with Montego Bay. Right, right. One more time, explain the title. Well, <laughs> uh, it was interesting because uh, the night before I went in to record the lead vocal on Moni Moni, I had no title. And we were just going crazy because we knew that, it, that we, we really felt the thing was a smash and we, and we knew it was an exciting party record. And, but every title that we came up with sounded so stupid. And we were looking for like a Louie Louie or a Boney Maroney or a you know, Sloopy, one of those kind of uh, nonsensical titles. And I, I just was at my wit's end and I went out uh, on, to my terrace. I'm standing there in the middle of New York. I'm looking out at the skyline. And all of a sudden, my eyes fall on the Mutual of New York building. <laughs> and, and in the middle of the sign, it went M-O-N-Y with a dollar sign right in the middle of the O. And I, I, I looked, and it, I said, my God, that's it. I can't believe it's that simple. <laughs> and I often have thought, what would have happened if I had looked the other way and it was, would have we called the song Hotel Taft or something? It just didn't have that ring to it. <laughs> so from the Mutual of New York building, M-O-N-Y, that's where Moni Moni came from. From March of 1968, that's Moni Moni. What a fun song. Tommy James and the Shondells. Okay, here's Roger Ashby talking to Tommy James about his growth as a songwriter. Your lyrics became a little more abstract with records like Crimson and Clover and Crystal Blue Persuasion. Now, was this just a sign of, of your maturing as a writer and a performer, or what was it that inspired those songs? Well, I think so. I mean, a lot of people thought they were drugs, but that, but that wasn't true. Well, that's, um, that's what I wanted to ask you, but I didn't have the nerve. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, um, uh, no, the, the truth is that... Uh, uh, as my writing uh, matured, I just I just started doing other things with lyrics and and Crimson and Clover, for example, because it was such an important record to me. It was the first record that I wrote and produced uh, all by myself. Uh, up till that time, we'd had producers, and when when I decided to do Crimson and Clover, I decided to uh, produce it myself. So it was a it was a, a milestone record for me, and I I remember as we were writing it, it was. Uh, the tune was more of a more of a feeling with words to it than a, than an actual song that I sat down and constructed. Um, um, the Crystal Blue Persuasion was much this, the same thing. Um, looking for a little different sound, a kind of light, airy sound um, in the summer of '69, and Crystal Blue Persuasion was just I don't know it was just kind of poetic uh, passion, kind of poetry. I don't I don't know how exactly to describe it. Just Crimson and Clover. Were, for example, were two of my favorite words that uh, I used to describe a feeling. Crimson and Clover from late 1968, Tommy James. Great song, and we must acknowledge another Tommy James song, Crystal Blue Persuasion, which was used to great effect in an episode of Breaking Bad. It was so beautifully laid into the end of one of the episodes. It was fantastic. I remember when that song came out, and it was really unexpected. It was sort yeah. of very psychedelic compared to what he'd done before. Let me ask you something about Tommy James. Do you think he was almost um, mercenary in the way he wrote songs in the sense that he saw that psychedelica was taking over and he goes, okay, I can write that? Or do you think that those songs like Crimson and Clover and Crystal Blue Persuasion came from kind of his heart? I kind of think 
it was the former, but I hope it was the latter because both are good songs. I don't know that it matters where it comes from because right. I think songwriters just, you know, respond to what's in the air and, and, and happening in the moment and something they like and, and they absorb things without thinking about it too. Stuff sticks to people who are songwriters and you yeah. end up using it some other time. I mean, were the Rolling Stones guilty of the same thing for writing She's a Rainbow? Right. Yeah, I wonder the same thing. Yeah. Let's continue our celebration of the 60s with one of the coolest bands of the decade, yeah. the Zombies. Now, in this clip, the random ways that band members find each other and become a musical unit is at the heart of this story about the formation of the Zombies. And the Zombies formed from uh, school, actually. Um, I remember the start of the band. It was when I was only about 15. And uh, I walked into uh, one of the classrooms in the school and Paul Atkinson just happened to be playing in a folk club which was going on in, in one of the classrooms at school and uh, I thought oh he sounds like a fair guitarist and I, I went up to him and said do you want to be in a band and he said yeah all right and uh, so I went home that night and I got a, a friend who was making a bass guitar although he'd never played anything in his life and I said do you want to be in a band and he said yeah fine all right and he said I'll play the bass because I'm making it and he said uh, I've got a friend also who uh, is a singer and guitarist he said, I'll get him along as well. And so this, in fact, was the start of the zombies. And we all met outside a pub one evening and used some borrowed gear to do our first rehearsal. And that was, in fact, the, the, the start of the zombies. And two years later, She's Not There came out, which was a number one. And uh, that was the start of it. And a few weeks later, it was a hit, and it sold maybe a million and a half records. Well, no one told me about her. The way she lied. The fall of 1964, She's Not There, well, no The Zombies. Great song. It is a great, I love that song. Mm -hmm. Rod Argent describes a very different time in recording sessions than what followed not too many years later. He also tells the unlikely story of their biggest success. We wanted to break up anyway. This was in about 1967. And we felt that the band had probably gone as far as it could go musically. But before we broke up, we wanted to produce an album ourselves. It was just a B that we had in our bonnet. Um, each track was done in the three-hour session with overdubs and everything. And each track was then subsequently mixed in, in one three-hour session. Time the Season was, in fact, the very last uh, track to be recorded on the whole album. And uh, I think Colin, by this time, he laughs about it now. He, he sort of more or less lost interest to, to some extent because he, he'd had enough of the business and all that. We were ripped off a lot, actually, in those days. We were, uh, a lot of people made money out of us and the group didn't actually make money. A lot of other people made money. And I think Colin was a bit fed up with the whole scene. And um, I remember that session very well, and it came to the vo time for the vocal, and I've always been a, a bit hard about the way I, I, I like my songs to be sung if I'm not singing them myself. And uh, I actually said to Colin a couple of times, well, could you sort of do it like this? And he said, and in the end, I remember him saying, listen, why don't you come here and sing it yourself? And it was sort of one of those sessions, but the actual product turned out really well. And in fact, it became our biggest selling, biggest ever selling record. It sold over two million. And that was really weird because we'd actually broken up by the time even the record was released. It's the time of the season when love runs high. The Zombies' 1968 time of the season. That has to be one of the coolest songs ever recorded, and it still sounds fantastic all these decades later. Amazing. And that album, by the way, Odyssey and Oracle, is considered a classic to this day. And the surviving members of the Zombies 
are planning to tour again in 2023. <laughs> Why not? The Living Dead. Okay. <laughs> well, you know, speaking of the zombies, they I, I love those songs because they didn't sound like they were chasing hits. They just sounded like they were writing cool songs, unlike other bands we've talked about. Yeah, I agree with that. They sounded like it encapsulated the band's sound. And they were almost above it all in how cool they were. <laughs> yes, indeed. Still lots to come on this 60s edition of Famous Lost Words, including more from the British Invasion. Welcome back to the 60s edition of Famous Lost Words. I'm Tom Jokic with Christopher Ward. In our last segment, we were talking about one of the coolest bands of that decade, The Zombies. What do we have now, Christopher? Okay, here's some people that weren't too cool, but we love them anyway. Yes. Jerry and the Pacemakers. They're from Liverpool. They were managed by Brian Epstein and produced by George Martin. Hmm, that should be a winning combination. <laughs> Lead singer Jerry Marsden tells the story of the song that became their biggest North American hit. The next record is Don't Let the Sun Catch You Crying. This was the first song I wrote um, that sold a million records. And it always means something very personal to me. And... Um, I think even today it's still one of my favourite records. Um, I think solely because it was the first one of my own personal records that I've written to make a gold record. So let's hear it. Don't get the song to you cry. All the morning will bring joy For every girl and boy So don't let the sun catch you crying from 1964, what a wonderful song, Don't Let the Sun Catch You Crying. And you got to love it when the artist is willing to play radio and do things like introduce their own songs. And what a good song that hmm. was. By the way, little historical note, it was also the first time I figured out how to play a major seven chord. Big moment in my life. That's great. That <laughs> sounds far above my pay grade, but uh, congratulations. Well, just play an F chord. And then take the, the E off the top, on the top so you get an F chord with an E in it. So it's a major seven. Dude, I'm a drummer. I don't understand anything about music. I hit things. <laughs> okay. All right. Okay, so here Jerry Marsden tells the story behind Ferry Cross the Mersey. We made a film called Ferry Cross the Mersey. And uh, the director said to me, right, Jerry, I want you to write the music. So I thought, very good. I was very pleased. I was very frightened as well. Anyway, I wrote the theme song, Freddy Cross the Mersey, and it still gives me a great deal of pleasure. Every time I hear it, I think it's about Liverpool. I'm about Liverpool. And I, I still get a nice big kick every time I hear the record. Uh, this, of course, was another big record for us in England and in the States and Canada. Uh, the film was great fun. It was made for touring. So it was sold to America and Canada and all over the world, Australia, because we couldn't quite tour the countries. So we made the film Ferry, which was no epic, but it was a good laugh. We enjoyed making it. And um, I might explain to you now the title of the film. Ferry Cross the Mersey. So ferry, cross the Mersey, cause this land's the place I love, and here I'll stay. That is a gorgeous song, Ferry Cross the Mersey from 1965. And Tom, I did meet Jerry. I interviewed him at Much Music once, and he was fantastic. Mike Myers and I had just done this little bit for the City Limits show. We called the Double Deckers. It was two British sort of fops sort of standing on the tarmac getting greeted by all the girls and so I've on. I've seen this, and, yes. And he, he dutifully was like, 
oh, you got to see the double deckers, man. They're great. They're, they're, they're going to be bigger than the Beatles. And he did this whole spiel for us. It was, it was so great. He was so lovely. That's amazing. Yeah, a really likable guy and great storyteller, too. The Who, from 1965, I can't explain. Pete Townsend, ever the articulate observer, as well as participant in the scene, tells a fascinating story of the influence of the Beatles on The Who. I think what was the turning point for us, like for a lot of bands, uh, we kept going, we kept playing pubs and stuff like that, and clubs, and used to make some, you know, good money. Bands used to actually make money in those days. And what was the turning point was The Beatles came along. I think that was in 63, late 63. And uh, I was at art school at the time, about about 16 or 17. And uh, just really turned everybody's heads around. It gave it, it made everybody in Britain realize that that British rock and roll meant something and that had something and we stopped looking to the states all the time. Uh, although of course we were taking uh, our roots from American music, from black American music and from uh, Elvis and stuff like that. Uh, but mainly, like the Beatles, we became influenced by Tamla Motown and R&B. And I think we uh, we reorganised the band into that kind of frame of music with Roger just singing, me taking over lead guitar, uh, and we found Keith Moon to play drums. I think about a year, a year after the Beatles... Uh, came on the scene we managed to get a recording contract uh we lost one recording contract it's quite an interesting story uh we lost one recording contract we did an audition with with the company that were looking after the beatles i think it was emi and uh we lost it because we weren't writing our own stuff they said they they were looking for bands that wrote their own material so i decided to have a bash at it And boy, did he ever have a bash at songwriting. That's a great clip from Pete Townsend from when he spoke to us in the late 70s. Tom, Man for Man tells the simple tale of the origins of a band that became something quite different from where they started. Well, the band started just like lots of bands. I suppose just a a load of people wandering around London in 1963. And it was originally really a kind of jazz blues band. And... um, we were playing lots of clubs in, set in the southeast of England. And um, in, seven, in 64, the beginning of 64, we had a hit record in England. And then I suppose all that happened was the band gradually become more and more of a straight three-minute singles pop band out of what was originally a kind of blues jazz group. And the first, really, I suppose, huge success was to what did he in the middle of 1964. There she was. Just walking down the street singing Do what diddy diddy, Manfred Mann, 1964. And here's the co-writer of that song, Jeff Berry, talking about his tendency to turn gibberish into hit songs. A lot of those kind of songs, in the mid-60s, I didn't talk English too much. It was all the do-run-run and hanky-panky and do what diddy and blah, 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 blah. You know, it was all those cute little songs that you know, I guess later would turn bubblegum, but that people, people, I find that hip people, people who are secure, like those things. They're not afraid to say they like them because they're entertaining and they're fun to sing. I mean, they're not about peace and brotherhood and all yeah, that. You know. 
You know, Tom, we have another Jeff Berry clip. It's here. He tells how Neil Diamond's career was on the rocks until they brought him to a new label. A string of hits followed for the singer-songwriter. found Neil making demos in the studio and really liked his stuff and talked Lieber and Stolen to signing him. They didn't know what to do with him for six months. They held him up there and nothing happened. And then when they let him go, uh, Ellie and I brought him to Bang. And uh, Burke Burns uh, really liked what he heard as well as we did. And uh, again, as simple as all that, went in and recorded. And uh, we went in and cut... Uh, <clears throat> Cherry Cherry and Girl to Be a Woman Soon, Thank the Lord for the Nighttime, Kentucky Woman, um, Red Red One, Shiloh. She got the way to move me, Cherry. She got the way to prove me. She got the way to move me, Cherry. She got the way to prove me. All right. Cherry Cherry, 1966, Neil Diamond. And you've got to respect the career that Neil Diamond had, but boy, I much prefer the early days with the songs that Jeff Berry mentioned there in that clip, including Cherry Cherry. If you're liking what you're hearing this week, check out the more than 100 previous episodes of Famous Lost Words on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or anywhere you enjoy a podcast. And if you're listening to the radio version of this show, that podcast feed will give you a number of bonus segments just from this episode alone. Raindrops keep falling on my head just like the guy whose feet are too big for his bed, nothing seems to fit. That's B.J. Thomas and Raindrops Keep Falling on My Head from 1969. What a great song. And how could we forget that scene from Sundance Kid, right? Yeah. Oh, my. There's a great story from B.J. Thomas, one of the most underrated singers of his era, of how he came to record the song Raindrops Keep Falling on My Head. Raindrops, I got just purely by being in the right place at the right time. And I know that's, it sounds like a cliche, but it's true. Uh, Dion Warwick, uh, who recorded so many Bacharach hits, was recording for Scepter Records, and I was on Scepter Records myself. And we'd been trying to get uh, Bert to record me for all a couple of years. And after I had my million seller on Hooked on a Feeling, uh, Dion was at the office when the record came in, and I wasn't there. I was down in Texas or Memphis or wherever I was living at the time, and I believe it was Memphis. And she, she anyway, she went in and got the record and took it in to Bert and said, well, is this good enough for you, you know? And Dion is just that kind of person, you know. She's a very outspoken and very wonderful lady. And uh, he said, yep. Yeah. He said, yeah, that's good enough for me. So when he first started to try to get someone to sing Raindrops, uh, he, he, he tried to get Bob Dylan, and uh, you know, not many people know it, but Bob Dylan is like one of his idols, uh, and you can tell it a lot sometimes in his melodies. Uh, and uh, myself, I can hear Bob Dylan singing Raindrops, but uh, when Bob turned it down, uh, 20th Century Fox or whoever it was was making a movie, he said, well, let's, let's call Ray, Ray Stevens, and uh, Bert said, no, he, says, uh, he said, I got a boy that's on the label with Dion, he says, I'm going to let him sing it, you know, and uh, of course that's how I got the chance, and, uh, you know, I, I thank the Lord for it. Nothing's worrying me. Oh, I love his vocal at the end right there. Raindrops keep falling on my head, 69, B.J. Thomas. And you can hear the rest of that interview in our archives. He was such a great interpreter of songs and also a wonderful storyteller. Now, let's go to December of 1968. These eyes cry every night for you. These eyes, the Guess Who from 1968. Burton Cummings talks about the Guess Who's first hit 
and how an early impression of an artist can be very difficult to shake. It was a huge record in Canada about four months before it was ever released in the U.S. And then it, it had its run in Canada and finished, and then it broke out of Detroit, I think. But it broke somewhere in the northern states, and then it was huge in the United States, and then it broke again in Canada after that. It was a monstrous record. We had no idea. I was totally against that being released as a single. I didn't really want to be classified as a, you know, as a ballad kind of band. It took us a long time to break out of that, too. Because, of course, your first big hit record is what people remember the longest. And if it's really hard, then they'll always associate you with harder music. And if it's soft, they'll associate you with softer things forever and ever. I mean, it took a long time. It really took a long time to sort of turn people's minds away from that. And as he told us later, the song that did turn it around for the guess who was No Time, which gave the group some credibility in rock circles. And then, of course, American mm. Woman cemented that legacy. Okay, Christopher, cool song fact right now. When Toronto producer Jack Richardson, who you know very well, mm -hmm. when he heard the Guess Who perform These Eyes on the CBC for the first time, he mortgaged his house to fly the band to New York City to record their first album. Now, is that the album that was like half the Guess Who and half the Staccatos? Oh, boy. And the Staccatos became the five-man electrical band. I don't, I yeah. don't think so. I think this was like their first real true album. Yeah, because that one was, I think, a promotional album for Coca-Cola, I believe. Yeah, I think you're right. And they didn't count it in sales figures because it was promotional, uh, which is too bad because right. it was a runaway hit in Canada. Mm. So, Christopher, I just want to ask you a quick question about Jack Richardson. What was it like working with him? Because he produced your first album, didn't he? Yes, and my, my, my second one as well. Mm. Um, he was a brilliant and inspiring person to work with. I mean, so much of what I understand about record making comes from the experience I had of working with him. That's great. He understood that more than anything else, the thing that he needed to do as a producer was get a great performance from the musicians on the floor. And he knew how to do it. That's amazing. Like his legacy, you know, the shadow of his career is a long one. And um, I'm not sure he gets enough credit in the grand scheme of things, although the uh, producer of the year, Juno, is called the Jack Richardson Award, is it not? Yes, it is, yeah. This week, we continue with our celebration of the music of the 1960s. I love smoking lightning. Heavy Metal Thunder, Born to be Wild, Steppenwolf, 1968. Born to be Wild is truly an iconic song, if only for the reference to Heavy Metal Thunder. John Kay tells how the band and the song came together. Prior to becoming Steppenwolf, the majority of the members of Steppenwolf, Jerry Edmonton, Gordon McDonough, and myself, uh, were in a Canadian rock band called The Sparrow, uh, in which Jerry's brother, uh, then known as Dennis Edmonton, uh, was the lead guitarist. When we went our separate ways and some of us reformed to become Steppenwolf, Dennis Edmonton became Mars Bonfire, who in turn pursued a solo career and writing career. And one of the uh, things that he came up with was a song called Born to be Wild, which he was making some demos of, and which he eventually recorded on a solo album. And since the demo came, you know, we came across it and we liked it, so... We actually got the gun on, you know, jumped the gun on it, and we recorded it. So, in a way, <clears throat> perhaps the uh, 
the first really important song, Born of the Wild, was, you know, linked again to our fast and to our drummer's brother, who is still writing today, and uh, we still occasionally go, you know, over some of the stuff he's writing. That song is so good on a number of levels. Born to be Wild, 1968. Great crunching guitar, amazing organ, wonderful lead vocals by John Kay of Steppenwolf. But most of all, it's Canadian content. Woohoo! <laughs> Tom, that does it for our celebration of the 60s. I'm yeah. Christopher Ward. Our show is produced and co written by Tom Jokic. Sure. I wrote half of it, but you remembered the other half because you were there, Christopher. Our theme music... (laughs) Is that a good thing? (laughs) Our theme music was created by Christopher Ward and Rob Wells. And I'd like to remind you that Christopher has a great book about the early wild days of much music that is called Is This Live? And his latest album is called Same River Twice. Oh, man, thank you for all those kind words. No problem. The executive producer of Famous Lost Words is Sarah Cummings. Don't forget that you can get caught up with past episodes of our show on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. And if you're listening to one of the radio stations across Canada, let them know that you're enjoying the show. And follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Instagram.